if you turn with me to Exodus 13, Exodus 13, we will uh, start there kind of verse 17. I think we'll kind of start there, somewhat start there. We uh, have been looking here as the Israelites, the Hebrews are in Egypt and God has delivered them now and we came to that point where Pharaoh after the 10th plague, uh, the death of the firstborn, Pharaoh finally says go and they go. Moses in writing this pauses then and gives us these two uh, parts of the calendar, the liturgy of worship for Israel, the Passover, and describes how they should follow this every single year in remembrance of what God has done. And then, of course, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is also a reminder of what God has done. So these two things become a part of the calendar of worship. So in reporting this exodus, Moses finds it appropriate to stop and implement these two things in the narrative, showing this is where we get this from. And I was just kind of reminding us last year that, that we it's appropriate for us to do the same thing, to think about why we do what we do. Um, and, and part of that reason that we do what we do, such as meeting on the first day of every single week, is because that's the day that Jesus rose again from the grave. So every single week, we gather together to celebrate the resurrection. And you can see how the Israelites yearly would gather together to celebrate the Passover, to celebrate God's redemption through the Feast of Unleavened Bread, to celebrate all of those things. That was a part of their regular worship pattern. And so now we kind of get back to the narrative, if you will. We kind of get back to the story, having pause to implement why we do what we do with the Passover, why they did what they did with the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now we're going to get back to the story. It's time for them to get up and go out of Egypt. And so we start there in verse 17 of chapter 13. Now I do want to pause again maybe and remind you of the overall theme. God is making himself known. And he has said this uh, from the start with Moses. It's time for me to make myself known. Remember when Moses first went to Pharaoh, Pharaoh responded, I don't know the Lord. And, and ultimately God saying, well, you're going to get to know me. And then the plagues, plagues, play, plagues come. And so uh, God is making himself known, but he's not just making himself known ultimately to Pharaoh through those plagues. He's also making himself known to his people. It's been 430 years, and this people knew. They knew the promises that came to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. They had heard those promises passed down, but God had not spoken, and he had not done anything uh, in, with that for 430 years. And now he's making himself known to them. And notice how he makes himself known to them. Even during the plagues, those plagues did not affect the Israelites. He protected them from those plagues, such as darkness that didn't go into the land of Goshen where they were, such as the flies, such as the gnats, all of those things. God protected Israel from those. And then ultimately he protected them from the death of the firstborn from 
for by providing a Passover lamb for them that would keep their firstborn alive, a sacrificial lamb that would keep it alive. So God is not only making himself known to the enemies of his people as the one who rules and reigns and you cannot stop him, he's also making himself known to his people as the one who cares for them in a special, peculiar way and loves them and watches over them and gives them all that they need to flourish, to flourish and in victory. And so that's how they left, remember? They left, we talked about it, with the spoils of victory. Uh, there was no battle fault in the sense of what we would think of as a battle. But when they were leaving, the Egyptians were giving them the, the, the spoils of victory. Here, go out with this. Take the silver. Take the gold. Take what you need. Go. Just go. And so you see them leaving victorious in light of that. But God knows that that's just the, the beginning here. Because what God has said from the start, and if you got, I know I told y'all to turn to Exodus 13, that's right, but, but flip over to Genesis 17. In Genesis 17, and I think, I'm shooting from the hip, sometimes that's bad, but I think it's verse 7. In Genesis 17, God is telling Abraham, that's this whole stretch there from Genesis 12 through like 17, God's making his promises known to Abraham. And we know those three main promises that he makes in Genesis 12, right? I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you a land and I'm going to bless, bless you ultimately. And so those are those three great promises. But then God kind of builds on those promises. He builds on those promises through giving them the sign of circumcision. Here's how you'll be marked as my people. He builds on those promises through the the vision that Abraham sees in that covenant uh, relationship where, where sleep comes over Abraham and God in the sleep appears to him and God, this pot that is flaming and smoking, walks through the animals that have been cut. Y'all remember that? I know it's been a couple years and y'all's memory may not be the best anymore. But they want, God is showing his power and how he is going to do this for them and keep these promises. And he says what I think is such an important passage in Genesis 17, starting in verse 7. He says, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. Where we are in Exodus are those generations. So God is demonstrating his keeping of his promises in Exodus chapter 13 by going back here to Genesis 17. See, he said this, he would do this from the beginning. Not just you, Abraham, but generations to follow you. I will establish my covenant. Verse 8, and I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. There's this promise here that will uh, come again and again in the Old Testament. In fact, if you, if you flip, I hopefully y'all kept your finger in Exodus 13. That's a, if you didn't, that's a rookie mistake, okay? Uh, if you didn't keep your finger there, that's, that's, you made a rookie mistake. Don't, don't do that again because we'll flip a couple places. So if you flip back to Exodus chapter 13 and then a few chapters before is chapter 6. Y'all see how I did that? Exodus chapter 6, whenever God is telling Abraham, I mean, excuse me, Moses, what he's about to do, he says there, and I think it's verse 
7 again. Say therefore, verse 6, say, say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. Y'all see verse 7? Highlight that, underline that, whatever you need to do there because that's the promise God is ultimately making to the people. I will be your God, you will be my people. That's it. In other words, God is saving Israel. He's calling Israel himself so that he can be with them. Does that make sense to everybody? He wants to be with them. And really, as we enter now in chapter 13 and start this pro, uh, process here, we're starting to see that promise. He says it in Genesis 17, I'll be their God, they will be my people. He says it again in, in Exodus uh, chapter 6, I will be their God, they will be my people. And now, starting this process, as Pharaoh says, remember what Pharaoh says, you can have them, God. Like Pharaoh and his pride, even at the end, shifts the ownership of the people of Israel to God. He says, okay, they're your people now. He doesn't own them anymore as slaves. Now they're your people, God. And God is saying, yes, he's not only redeemed them out of Egypt, he's wanting to be with his people. And really, as we start this next section, that's exactly what we're going to see. How does a holy God dwell with his people? There's going to be all kind of ramifications that come, all kind of things that need to be done. We're going to see how God is going to be with his people. The ultimate highlight of that is as they march and they get to a mountain called Sinai, where God says, here's what it takes for you to dwell with me. I will be your God. You will be my people. Now you got to live like this. I've already redeemed you. Now here's how you live to dwell and be with me. All throughout scripture, by the way, that's the thing. God is our God, the God of his people, and we, his people, are to dwell with him. I mean, what do y'all think heaven is? Heaven is where God's people dwell with God. And ultimately, that's what we're marching toward. That's what we're getting to. That's why we're strangers and pilgrims here. That's why Emmanuel is so important because God came to be with us, right? When we couldn't go, he came, Emmanuel, God with us. That's why it's so important to understand the, the uh, indwelling of the spirit of God. He comes, saves us, gives us a new heart, cleanses us, washes us from all sin. The righteousness of the perfect savior who has been provided for us becomes ours and the Spirit of God dwells with his people, inside his people. The indwelling of the Spirit is key to this. God will be our God and we are his people. He wants to be with us. And that's exactly what we start seeing here in Exodus 13. Because God is going to be with his people. He's not going to leave them nor forsake them. No matter how whiny they get, right? no matter how much they complain. And they complain right off the bat. I mean, crack at a bat, and here comes the complaints. But God is going to be with his people, and he's going to demonstrate over and over again what that means for them. 
And here's how it says, even there in verse 17, you almost, you get a glimpse into what God's thinking. Moses kind of gives us a glimpse into his planning here. So here, even here, God has a plan for his people. He doesn't just say, all right, y'all pack up, let's go, follow me, right? He, he, he has a plan and it lays out what the plan is. He is going to say, follow me, by the way, but he lays out what the plan is at least. He says, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness. He knew his people. God knows us. He knew if they go through the land of the Philistines and the Philistines get their, you know, uh, get all upset, you know, uh, and bristle up because here comes a couple mil, you know, 600K men marching through their land. The Philistines bristle up at this. They're going to maybe want to start fighting. And if my people see a fight coming and then they may turn around and go back to Egypt. God knows what's best for his people, and he does not lead them the way that's worse, right? He takes them around it. I find that to be glorious. Y'all know that sometimes, sometimes we'll go somewhere, and, and just think about this. Where does God lead them? He leads them right up to the edge of a lake, a sea. It's better for them to march through a sea than to march through the land of the Philistines. God sometimes takes us to places and we're going, what are we doing here? Why are we here? And what we don't know, by the way, let's just get this straight. This is me coming up with a statistic. And so the best thing you can do as, I mean, statistics are great because you can make up anything you want to say, really. I mean, I can, you can pretty much make up any statistic you want and then you can go to the internet and find somebody that'll say, yeah, that's right. You know what I mean? And so you can make up anything. But here's my statistic on this. I believe that we only know about 5% of what God is doing in our life. Do y'all understand what I'm saying? I believe we only know about 5%. And if we knew 10%, it would be overwhelming to us to understand. We only know about 5%. We don't even understand how many times God has saved us from death. We don't even know how many times God has protected us from something that's wicked. We got no idea, really, how many times God has cared. And so my prayer sometimes is, Lord, let me see, let me see 7% today. Just, just let me see it. Because I believe we only know just a, just a little bit of what God is doing. So the Egyptians here, I mean, the, the Israelites here, are taking off, and they're going to get to the edge of the Red Sea, and they're going to start complaining. What they didn't know is God just saved them from war and death with the Philistines. Does everybody get what I'm saying? Sometimes when we complain about things that are going on in our life, what we should understand is that God is gracious and he has led us out of danger to where we are now. And when we get to where we are and we want to complain about it, God is only taking us there so as he can show us his great and glorious power. And that's exactly what we have here. God, said, God lets us in. I didn't take him through the Philistines land because if they saw the Philistines start to fight, I knew my people, that was too much for them. They would turn around and be ready to leave. So instead, he takes them the other way. 
God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. Surely this is what Pharaoh's going to say, by the way. Pharaoh says, oh, they're lost in the wilderness. You get out there, you die in like three days. You know what I'm saying? They can't survive out there. That's what God does, though. He takes them into the wilderness toward the Red Sea, and the people of Israel went out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. We'll come back to that. We'll come back to that equipped for battle, okay? That's how... It starts off giving us an idea of what's going on in God's head, how he protects his people from from danger without them even knowing it and leads them a different way so as what's better for them. gives us that idea. Then he says in verse 19, I find this to be a, a, a great passage. Verse 19, notice this. Moses is in charge of a whole bunch of people, a whole mess of them. You know, 600,000 Men ready for battle, as it said, right? So he's in charge of all of them. Have, have any of y'all ever taken like your kids and their friends out to dinner? Like a Chuck E. Cheese? You get like five of them and you're overwhelmed. You know what I'm saying? I don't know where they are. I don't know what they're doing. I don't know what's happening. I just hope they survive tonight, you know? And you feel that way. Moses is responsible for 600,000 plus here. It's already said this. And they're getting up and they're leaving out of Egypt. But what does Moses remember? In the midst of his responsibility over all of this, Moses, it says, took the bones of Joseph with him. That is fascinating. Let's, let's, let's go through. Let's see how this ties some things together here. Flip back with me. Y'all remember how you keep your finger where there. Flip back with me to Genesis chapter 50. Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers into Potiphar's family. Potiphar, his wife, lied about him, got him into prison. Then he got out of prison because he interpreted a couple dreams and Pharaoh's like, that's the guy I need. And so Joseph rises up to power because in interpreting those dreams, he makes sure Egypt is the richest land in the world because he interpreted that the famine was coming and they were ready for it. So he rises to number two in Egypt. He's number two in Egypt. He has anything he wants. In fact, you remember Pharaoh at that time said, whatever he asks, you give it to him. Whatever he wants, you get it. If anybody could say, man, I got it made up in here and Egypt becomes their home, it would be Joseph. He's got whatever he wants in Egypt. But when it came time after his people finally had settled, God had worked it out to take care of them, got them all in Egypt, it tells us at the end of the book of Genesis, it says there, verse 24, Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Joseph believed what? The promises. Joseph believed the promise. Egypt, even though he had set him up in the land of Goshen, everything was right. This was not the promised land. Even though Joseph had risen to number two in the whole place and could have anything he wanted in Egypt, this was not home. And so Joseph said, God's coming for y'all. He's coming and he's going to get you. Notice what he says. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, don't y'all let me rot in Egypt. Right? That's not what he said, but that would have been cool if he had said it that way. He said, God will surely visit you and you shall carry my bones up from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old. He was put in a coffin in Egypt. 
Joseph said, this is not my home. This land is not my land. There is one waiting for me and God's going to take you there. I want to go with you. I want to go with you. And this is why the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 11 that in his life and in his death, Joseph testified to faith. Joseph testified to faith because he said, I don't care even if I'm dead, don't leave my bones in Egypt. Take me home. Take me home. I like that, don't y'all? That sounds like a southern gospel song waiting to be written or something. Even if I'm dead, take me home. And so ultimately, we see that Moses, 430 years later, as he's getting ready to lead 600K plus out of the land of Egypt, after all these plagues and all this stuff, Moses, 430 years later, says, y'all don't forget the bones of Joseph. Y'all don't forget those bones. Go get them. What this does is it really ties the story together. It ties this whole piece together. This isn't two separate stories that's going on. This is one story that's happening from beginning to end. Going back to Abraham and the promises. And Joseph heard those promises from his dad, right? And he knew they were true. And he said, there's a land waiting for us. And he knew it was coming. And he knew it. So Joseph's saying, when God does that, take me home with you. Don't leave me here in Egypt. And in this, God, this this, uh, story that's going on is bound together. God is the main actor. He's the main driver, the star of the show. And under it all, this promise of God through uh, the end and and the blessing. And this, uh, this embalmed mummy of Joseph, right? This embalmed mummy in a coffin being carried out of Egypt be sure to be a token of the promises of God being fulfilled by him. That's why the author of Hebrews says, in life and in death, Joseph testified to faith. But notice this. I love this. I love this too. Y'all flip over with me to Joshua chapter 24. I know I'm getting way ahead of myself in Joshua. Y'all don't even know what happens there, but Joshua 24, right at the end of the book, it's almost as if they're writing this and they go, oh, oh let me remind y'all. Y'all remember, y'all remember how, uh, I mean, one of the greatest movies, I tell my kids all the time, you cannot top the 1980s with movies. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you got the tail end of Star Wars. You got the Rocky movies coming up through there, three and four. I mean, there's the best. You got some other ones. I, and, you know, I'm not just, I'm not condoning all But, man, you got some movies in the 80s that were just incredible. I mean, Rocky Four when we beat the Russians? Are y'all kidding me? I, in the theater, at nine years old, was screaming at the top of my lungs, Rocky, Rocky. I remember it. Anyway. Indiana Jones. You get to the end of Indiana Jones after they found the Ark of the Covenant. By the way, it's not real. It's not still there. Y'all don't know that. They find it, and what do they do? They put it in a box, and they wheel it into a warehouse in Area 51 in Arizona somewhere, and it's kind of lost to it, right? It's kind of like, oh, this little tag on at the end, that's where they put it. Well, you get to the end of Joshua. And Joshua is all about the conquest of the land. And by the end of it, they've taken over the land and it's been split up by the tribes and they all got their peace. And what does it say at the end of Joshua? Oh, by the way, 
It's like the little scene at the end of Indiana Jones. As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up out of Egypt, they buried them at Shechem in the piece of land that Jacob brought from the sons of Hamar, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance for the descendants of Joseph. Isn't that something? For 40 years in the wilderness, somebody was responsible to take care of Joseph's coffin to make sure he gets safely home. Isn't that something? In 40 years in the wilderness, somebody, through all the battles at Jericho, all these battles that went on, somebody was responsible. Y'all make sure nothing happens to Joseph, right? Y'all make sure those bones get safely where they need to go. And even in life and death, Joseph testifies to faith. Man, I hope, I hope that not only, not only, uh, uh, in my life, I demonstrate such faith as to say, this is not my home. No matter how high I may rise in fame here or how wealthy this world may make me or my family, I hope at the end of it I say, I don't want to be here. I want to be there. Make sure of that testimony. And my kids, and my kids after my kids, make sure that if ever was I was remembered, it would not be for who or what I did, only for who I believed in and trusted, right? And here it is for Joseph. The bones were carried through. And how that great does that tie this whole story together from Genesis to Exodus to Joshua, tying it all together that they made sure Joseph's wish to be buried in the promised land was fulfilled and his faith was finally realized in that. God will surely visit you, he says. God will surely visit you. You shall carry up my bones, reminding them of what Joseph said back in chapter 13. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham at the edge of the wilderness. Verse 21, now they're getting ready to go into the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. God didn't just save them to say, hey, all right, y'all head, y'all head to Canaan. God saved them to be with them. And now in this journey from Egypt to Canaan, there will not be a day or a moment that the people of God will not know that God is with them. All they got to do is look outside. Whether they build their tent and go to sleep in the evening, if they got to wander, all they got to do is peek outside the tent and they'll see that pillar of fire. In the daytime, if they're questioning whether or not they're going the right way, all they got to do is look and that pillar of cloud is leading them. God's presence is with his people. And his presence, that pillar of fire and pillar of cloud does several things. One, it guides his people. It's going to lead them out. Moses is going to get to a place and said, I'm not leaving unless you leave. How would Moses know if he's leaving? Because that pillar of cloud started walking, started going. Moses, I'll, I'll go if you go. If you stay, I'm staying. I'm not going without you, Lord, right? And so it starts leaving out. It's their guide through the wilderness. It takes them where they need to go. It reminds them of the presence and guides them through the wilderness. But not only that, it's also their provision. It'll come just in a little bit, but where do y'all think that manna falls from? That manna comes from that pillar of Cloud in the day, right? It's God providing. Just as Jesus says, just as the bread came from God, came from heaven itself, so as I have come down from heaven. 
as the bread of life, right? Ultimately, God is going to provide for his people. This shows his provision. It shows his presence. It shows his guidance. And it also shows his protection. His protection. In just a little bit, we'll see as they get to the Red Sea and and the, the Egyptian army starts in on them, it tells us in the word that that pillar of cloud turns. And instead of being in front of the people, goes behind the people and confuses the Egyptians so as they cannot see or get to them. That pillar recognizes as the protection, the provision, the provider of God's people. God is with them. He's with them. He's taking care of them. And so ultimately, what do they have to fear? That's what it means, by the way, when he comes back. He just said that they don't need to go into the land of the Philistines because if they see that they're ready for war, they may turn around and run. But then he tells us in verse 18 of chapter 13 that they are equipped for battle. What has made the people of God equipped for battle? Are they walking out with weapons? Are they walking out with chariots? Do they have horses? In fact, it doesn't tell us they have any of that. They've got something greater than that. They've got the presence of God with them. They've got God with them. He just fought for them in Egypt, and they won that battle without doing anything other than being obedient to him. He just fought for them, and he's with them again. They are equipped for whatever battle comes and only equipped because God is with them. Y'all know how it works. Uh, We use this kind of language. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Y'all ever heard that before? Well, of course, that's exactly what we're seeing here. God with his people, you need nothing else. You're equipped, you're armed, you have everything you need, you have everything that, that you could possibly have, have everything that you could possibly need when you have the Lord on your side. He'll provide for you, He'll protect you, He'll guide you, He'll lead you. You got everything you need as an army walking through this wilderness when God is in your presence. You are in His presence. He is your God. You are His people. You've got everything you need. So why do you fear? Then you get to chapter 14. In chapter 14, the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of the Pahaharioth. Y'all think I did that right? Y'all don't know and I don't know either. So it doesn't really matter as we go through this, right? Sometimes you just go as fast as you can. Between Migdol and the sea in front of Baal Sephon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. By the way, just making a note on all these places that they mentioned, it's another proof that the word of God is true. Why? Because y'all know archaeology is only proven every day when we find these places. Oh, that actually, that place does exist. If you were just trying to write a book that you're kind of making up as you go along for general purposes and it was a bunch of, full of a bunch of parables, y'all know what I'm saying, that weren't really real, you're just trying to teach something, this didn't really happen, you're just trying to teach somebody something, so you're kind of making this up. If you were just doing this, then by all means, you ain't got to say a place. You ain't got to do it. But these places only intensify the fact that he's saying these are real places in a real time happening with real uh, people walking through these real towns. And so ultimately, we see this is a testimony to the veracity of God's word itself. For Pharaoh will say 
of the people of Israel. They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. Pharaoh's going to think as they go into the wilderness that they're going to be lame ducks again. That he can go get them. He can have them back. His workforce has left. Somebody's got to go get them. Pharaoh's going to believe he can do that when he sees them going into the wilderness. That was a dumb mistake. He'll pursue them. And the Lord says what? I will get the glory. I will get the glory over, over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Again, God gets the glory, and his name is known. This theme comes throughout. Anytime Pharaoh tries to make an advance, God gets the glory, and his name becomes known. And that's the case. That's the case in all of these circumstances of battle, all of these times that the enemies of God come against the people of God. I mean, we can just think of a few of them. Think of somebody like Gideon, you know, who said, I only got 30,000 people. So the Lord says, no, you don't. You're going to whittle that down to 300, you know. You think that's all you got. You're going to bring this on down. Why? Because you're about to get the victory and I'm going to get the glory. I'm getting the glory and my name will be made known. Think about David himself. David, the little ruddy old David, tells the giant, I'm going to cut off your head so the world may know my God reigns, right? He's going to get, God's going to get the glory and his name's going to be made known. And here he says it again. The Lord says, that's exactly what's going to happen. He's going to come after you, but don't you fear because I'm going to get the glory and my name will be known. And they did so, it says. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this that we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? In other words, we've lost our entire workforce. How are we going to survive? So he made ready his chariot, took his army with him, took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel with, while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them in camp by the sea by Pahahiroth in front of Baal-Saphon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes. They look, they see, here comes Pharaoh. And behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they did what? They said, bring it on. God's on our side. Is that how it worked? No. They feared greatly. They were terrified. They feared greatly, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. What did I tell y'all? At the crack of the bat, they begin to complain. How quickly, and now, before I go too far, we love at this point to point the fingers at the Israelites like they're a bunch of dummies, don't we? How quickly... Do they forget? Did they not remember these 10 plagues that they just had? Do you not remember what God just did in Egypt? Do you not remember all that he has done for you and, and, and all of his power being on display and how he's made himself known? Do you not remember all of that stuff? 
And yet the moment adversity comes in the wilderness, they turn back on God and said, you brought us out here to die. This is a setup. There's no graves in Egypt, so you brought us out here so we can just die in the wilderness. This is a setup for us. We don't even have food. We don't have nothing. And now the Egyptians are coming after us. Why did you do this? It was hard on us there. They made us make bricks without straw. Imagine what the Egyptians are going to do when they take us back and put us back to work. God, you, this is terrible. And Moses said to the people, fear not. God told the people what would happen. And it happened in a powerful way. God told them he was going to deliver them out of Egypt. He told them back in chapter 6, I'm going to bring you out. And he did. And not only do it, he did it in a magnificently powerful way. He demonstrated it in every way, his power. God told them what to do. They were fully equipped and ready for the next step. He even protected them from what would be harshness and took them the way that would be better for them. He's equipped them for battle in every way because he is with them. He's guiding them this pillar of fire, pillar of cloud. He is providing for them. He is, he is protecting them. He's doing everything they need. He's got it all. And what he says here is fear not. They were prepared. They were ready, but they fell in fear. My point in that is to say, notice the irrationality of sin. Sin, in every case, is irrational. It's irrational. That means there's no reason behind it. You know what I'm saying? There's, you can't make it make sense. If we believe that there is a God that is in charge of all things, the creator of the universe that spoke it into existence, that established the rules, that set it up. If we believe what the scripture says about who God is and we believe about the scripture say about who we are and our need for him and how he saved us even when we are sinners, if we believe all of that, the only rational response, y'all understand what I mean by rational, right? The only common sense response would be to follow him not to second guess him not to not to deny him not to say hey you don't know what you're doing that doesn't make any sense how we as finite creatures who believe that this infinite god who spoke everything out of nothing who even formed us out of dirt breathed the very breath we have into our bodies who has given us every breath we've had since he's causing our heart to beat even now if we believe that to be true then it makes zero sense that we would take the breath that he gives us and use it to glorify ourselves it makes zero sense that he would take the heartbeats that he puts in our chest and use it for our own selfish gain in our pursuing. The only rational response to who God is and what he's done for us is to follow him. That's the only rational response. That's why this seems so hard because when we're looking at it, we can see that's so irrational. What are they doing? He just whipped the Egyptians one time, two times, three times, four, over and over again. He just whipped them and whipped them, and he's called us and brought us out. We got a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud walking in front of us. This doesn't happen every day. He's doing all of this in the irrationality of, you left us out here to die, God. Here we are defeated. And the reason I say that is because it's real easy for us to point out the irrationality of the Israelites and not to see our own irrationality in falling into sin over and over again. Y'all know what the book of Hebrews said, and I, I can kind of drop this and leave it right here. He says, if, 
you deliberately continue in sin, there is no salvation for you. Hebrews chapter 10. Why? Because you cannot stay in that irrational state once you have seen the glory of God and his majesty. You have seen what he's done. There's no way you can continue to do that. You may mess up, and it's like Martin Luther said, the bird may fly over your head, but you better not let it make a nest in your hair. And that's exactly what we see here. Surely we fall, surely we do some stupid stuff, but to stay in it and to stay on it is irrational. And we like to point it out here, but please know that we only demonstrate our foolishness whenever we don't point it out in our own life. In our own life. The Israelites say, what are we doing? Moses looks at them. By the way, when Moses says, do not be afraid or fear not, that is the number one command in all of the Old Testament. It's done, it, that command is given by God more, or his prophets more than any other command in all of the Old Testament. Do not be afraid. Do not fear. Fear not. Same thing. It's given more than any other ones. And so here Moses says, fear not. Stand firm. See the salvation of the Lord, which we will work which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. Moses says, watch this, y'all. Moses still believes God's going to take care of us. He always has. You shall never see it again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. Isn't that something? Write that somewhere on your mirror when you wake up in the morning on a little card. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. We have a God who provides every need we have. He provides for us. He protects us. He guides us. He fights for us. In fact, whenever Moses starts his song in chapter 15, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. This is my God. I will praise him. My father's God. I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. The Lord is a warrior for his people. He fights for his people. How does he fight for his people? In fact, the scriptures tell us that even when Jesus was going to the cross, that was a battle that was raging. He fought even through the cross, and on the cross, he crushed his enemy. That's why it says in Romans 16, the God of peace will crush Satan. The God of peace will ultimately bring peace by bringing to death all of his opponents and enemies. And ultimately, we see that here, this God, the Lord is a warrior who fights on his path of his people. And the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Keep going. Don't quit. I'm with you. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea. Divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea. Y'all know that song, God will make a way. Oh, Y'all hear me sing? I always wanted to do that, and I just did it tonight. I think that's the first time. When there seems to be no way. Y'all remember that song? They thought it would have been better for them to go through the land of Philistines. They got roads. They got restaurants. They got pit stops. They got QTs. You know what I'm saying? They got jalapeno cheddar dog at a QT. I mean, who doesn't stop for that? And so we, we thought that would be, of course, the Israelites wouldn't. Jalapeno cheddar dog wouldn't have fit within it. But they, they, 
they got what they need if they go through the land of the Philistines. But, but the Lord knows better. And he took them the different way through the wilderness. And Pharaoh's like, what in the world's going on here? God doesn't, he's not scared of the wilderness. In fact, the Lord is the shepherd who leads his people through the valley of the shadow of death and they fear no evil. And he goes to the Red Sea and it looks like they're stuck between a rock and a hard place. And the Lord does what only he can do. And through the power of God, the Red Sea splits in two. And notice what it says. I love how it puts this because it says it several times here. It says, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. Have any of y'all ever been to a, to a, 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 a pond raising? Y'all ever been to one of those? That's what we called it, you know, raising, R-A-Z-I-N-G, bring it down. And so we had a pond. My mom and dad had a pond. It's getting to be 725, so I'm going to have to end with this story. Mom and dad, because I like this story. Mom and dad had a pond. We had, I had a pond. They may have owned it, but it was mine. And, and the dam needed to be fixed. The spillway was messed up. We had to fix the dam. And so you know what that means. We got to bust it open. We got to let all the water drain out, get it down to where you can fix the spillway and the dam. It was down at the bottom. And so I had never, I was like eight years old, nine years old. I had never been more excited in my life. I've been swimming in the pond my whole life. Now I get to see what's underneath it. You know what I'm saying? And I get to go in there. And then dad tells me, hey, son, here's what I need you to do. When this water goes down, there's going to be fish everywhere. I need, we got some trash cans out here. I need you to catch the fish and throw them in the trash cans. You, you could have told me that this was heaven. <laughs> and sure enough, the water goes down and there's fish flopping all over the pond. I'm talking hundreds of fish flopping. And by the way, we all thought we had some nice fish in that pond. It was like 150,000 of those suckers. Y'all know what I'm talking about? They just suck mud off the bottom of the pond. They took over the whole place, full of bones, can't eat them. But man, I'm trying to get... And here's my little eight-year-old self. The pond goes down, and before I know it, I am up to here in mud. And it took five grown men to pull me out. The miracle of the fact that what it says here is that a whole sea parts and it was dry ground they walked on. It wasn't just as this was just the water was taken away. It wasn't just, you know, there's a lot of people that like to explain away these things. This was probably the Reed Sea in, in there. And so therefore, the Reed Sea is only two foot deep. I don't care if it's two foot or a thousand foot, you remove that water, it's not going to be dry ground to walk on. That's the miracle of it, right? The walls split and it's dry ground they walk through. It's the same time they say well, it's only two foot. Well, I say, well, the Lord drowned the entire Egyptian army in two feet. Good grief, what a miracle. And so ultimately we see this. The miracle cannot be denied here. He splits it dry ground for his people. He has paved the way for them to find freedom. He's paved the way for them to get to victory. And all they got to do is be silent and walk. And friends, that's exactly what God has done for us in Christ. The only thing we offered the only thing we added to our salvation was the sin by which made it necessary. 
And God comes when there seems to be no way. We are helpless and hopeless in our sin, and he makes a way through the death of his son on the cross, right? And so we now go from zero to victory on dry ground. The path that God has paved for us, all we have to do is be silent and walk it. Just follow him. He's done it all. And here he sees that again. I've done it all for you. These people were equipped for battle and they didn't even know it because the Lord fought for them. And what does it say? I got to go. Let's go. Y'all ready? One more little thing. He says, I will get the glory in verse 17. I'll harden hearts of Egyptians so that they shall go after death. I will get the glory over Pharaoh and his hosts and his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord whom I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. The scriptures tell us that for those of us who find salvation, there is no boasting whatsoever. That when God has defeated our enemies, he gets the glory, not us. When God has de delivered us from sin, from death to life, right? As John 5 says, he delivers us. You believe in him, you passed over from death to life. When we go out of darkness and into the light, there is no glory that we save for ourselves. All of it goes to him. All of it goes to him. And that's the only right response for us when we understand that God has saved us. In John chapter 6, he quotes Isaiah and he reminds us of Isaiah chapter 6 when God displayed his glory right as, as, as John chapter 12 when God displayed his glory in Isaiah and in, 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 in Isaiah 6 and Isaiah saw the glory of God and instead of believing that John says that men love the glory that comes from one another rather than the glory that comes from God our biggest problem is we follow this irrationality of thinking the glory can come to us. And in the end, there is only going to be one receiving the glory that he that belongs and due to him, the Lord God Almighty. So our role and responsibility now is to go ahead and give it to him, to proclaim him victorious, to walk the path he has set for us, to understand he's providing, he's protecting, he's guiding, he's doing it all. He gets all the glory. We take no credit for ourselves. As the Israelites move through the wilderness, that theme will continue. I'm going to make myself known, the Lord says, and I'll get all the glory. And God, hear me when I say this, God getting the glory is what is best for me and you. God getting all the glory is what is best for us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for who you are and what you've done, and may we be quick to give you all the glory. Father, we know that salvation only comes for you, from you, and God, we know that you are the one who has paved the way for us through your son, Jesus Christ. So may we follow, may we follow, may we believe, even as we understand we have only only to be obedient. God, thank you. Help us to learn these lessons in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank y'all so much. We'll see y'all Sunday.